the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And when it comes to things that are spiritual, there are only two forces behind it. There's no third. Anything spiritual either has God behind it or the demons. Satan. Join us now for Grace to the Bay as we glorify the Lord Jesus Christ through sound expository teaching by our teacher, Dr. Roger Chen. Grace to the Bay is the radio outreach of Grace Church of the Bay Area located in San Mateo. If you are blessed by Dr. Chen's message and are looking for a church home, you're invited to come worship with them. Now, here is Dr. Chen. As Christians, we understand how horrible it is to partake in idolatry. We understand how evil it is that idolatry even exists in this world and has existed since almost the beginning of time. What we may not have been as familiar with is the fact that even participating remotely in any sort of idolatry, as we have seen with the Corinthians, simply going to a birthday party or a wedding feast at a temple, eating meat that had just moments ago been sacrificed to a false pagan god, is in and of itself a part of idolatry. And what we have been seeing in 1 Corinthians is in the greater realm of gray areas, doing things that in and of themselves may not be wrong, but in preference for other people and for the sake of the Lord's glory, many of those gray areas we should choose to forsake. Well, as we continue and look at the reality of idolatry and what God sees in that and in the participation, though very remotely by the Corinthians 2,000 years ago, we continue our study in the revealing reality of idolatry. If you haven't already, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're looking at verses 14 through 22 over these past two weeks. We will finish up. But let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 through 22. Let me read that for you. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread... We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things with which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than He, are we? 
We've been looking at five concluding realities of idolatry, concluding because we've come to the end of a long study regarding this topic. And again, we're not talking about full-blown participation or idol worship, going in and praying to Buddha or uh, worshiping Zeus or whatever it may be. He is addressing the practice of some of the Corinthian Christians of simply having a meal at a temple. Last week, we saw the first two of these concluding realities of idolatry. And by way of review, the first one was the reality of inference. In verses 14 and 15, again, he calls them beloved. We see his love for them, and he uses the word flee. Flee idolatry to emphasize that they are to have absolutely nothing to do with idolatry. Which again doesn't just mean to avoid full-blown idolatry, but means to have no part in any semblance or subset of idolatry. Even these days, if that idol worship happens to use the Bible, have nothing to do it. And the word means to run. Run away and keep on running when it comes to such things. Paul is specifically addressing some of the Corinthian believers' habit of attending meals at the temples after that pagan worship service. But the fact that this is what he is telling them to flee shows us how even seemingly innocuous and peripheral aspects of idolatry have no place in the Christian's life. In verse 15, as we saw, Paul assumes that this is obvious to them. Given all the information that he has already supplied, they will naturally come to this conclusion on their own. It's a known brainer. You are wise. You get it, he says. The reality is, though, that many things are clear to us in the Scriptures. They come to the logical conclusion of flee in our minds. But oftentimes the temptation is so great, the pleasure so appealing, the sin so satisfying, that though we come to the right conclusion intellectually, We participate in the wrong practically. We know it's wrong. We know it's wrong when we're doing it. We knew it was wrong before we did it. We now feel guilty because we've always known it's wrong. So despite having enough to go on to flee idolatry and to come to that conclusion on their own, Paul continues by setting up the illustrative significance of the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper, communion, three terms for the same thing. And we looked at our second concluding reality of idolatry last week, the reality of identification. In verses 16 through 18, let me read again. He says, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar. Though when we take communion in the Christian church, we understand that what we are doing and even the physical elements, they are symbolic. The institution of this symbolism that is to be a regular part of the church's life, however, shows how serious this is. He says, this is my body. This is my blood. Now we know it's symbolic because... Nowhere does he say he miraculously becomes or those elements become the body and blood as some teach. Nor, more to the point, at the Last Supper when he instituted this, he did not literally cut himself and bleed into a cup and say, drink this. 
He didn't cut pieces of his flesh off and say to eat it. He didn't even cut off something that wouldn't have hurt, like hair or fingernails. It was symbolic at the very institution of it, at the Last Supper with the disciples. It is symbolic today. But the seriousness of all of this is made all the more profound when taking into account what communion symbolizes. Ultimately, it is the sacrifice of the Lord on our behalf. It is the crux of the gospel. It is the crux of our lives. It is the crux of why this world still exists. The cup represents the blood, which represents his death. The bread represents his body, which represents his death. And when Paul says that we share in the blood and body of Christ, we are sharing in all the benefits of what that blood and body did for us and to us, namely redemption and all that it entails. Things like blessings, things like trusting in God, things as like we saw a couple of weeks ago, a way of escape and all temptation, a place in heaven and eternity secure. All of those things start from the cross, start from salvation, redemption. So we have all of that. And ultimately, it is the body and blood, it is the death of Christ that we are symbolically representing and taking of in communion. But there is a flood of immensity that is attached to that. From the first step of faith and the forgiveness of sins, through the constant forgiveness and spiritual material blessings involved in the Christian life, all the way to the eternity we will inherit and enjoy forevermore. The pattern, Paul goes on to illustrate, was set for us long ago in the Israelite Passover, in which the death of the Lamb saved them physically, followed by their salvation from Egypt. The celebration of the Passover was then instituted by command for the nation of Israel, for Jews, to be commemorated on an annual basis. This special meal in remembrance of that special day of deliverance from Egypt set them apart as God's unique and holy people. And because of that, there was a sharing, a fellowship with each other as a people. They had that in common. It made them unique. It bound them in commonality and spiritual brotherhood. In the same way, communion does that for us. It's not just about the uniqueness of doing this at a church while only focusing on your salvation that that represents, but it is the uniqueness, like Israel, of a common experience in sharing in the body and blood of Christ with all Christians everywhere, and especially and specifically those in the local church sitting next to you as you do it. In other words, in all the known universe, nobody else does this. Nobody else even gets it. It makes us a people unique in this world, and so it binds us in commonality and spiritual brotherhood. And as such, we must live that out, the brotherhood. Communion must remind us of who we are as a chosen family of God and how we need to treat each other, which in most cases is better than we do now. You see, like Sunday morning worship, communion is not like watching a movie. It's just you and the screen, and what matters is that you're not interrupted. No, that's not what it's like. It's about you and your relationship with God for sure, but it's also about your relationship with all those who partake or should partake of the Lord's table. 
You see the difference? In a movie, it doesn't matter. You don't talk. It's just you. You just want to enjoy. Maybe it's more like a game where you're high-fiving the fans around you. You're You're all wearing the same jersey, the same logo. And let me make this practical for you. We take communion because what Christ did on the cross matters. And what Christ did on the cross matters because you matter. You are the one He died for. You are the one He saved. The reverse is even more true. You matter because of what Christ did on the cross. And I don't mean you matter in a general sense. You matter in a specific sense. You as an individual. Every one of you. Your presence. You, singular. Your presence. Not just those people. Not just those people. Your presence and participation are important to all of us. I get it happens from time to time. We all have different issues in our lives, medical issues, work issues. But if as a habit, knowingly, you stroll into church late all the time, or you don't show up at all, that affects all of us. Because again, it's not like an annoying disturbance as someone walks in late to a movie theater, and it's really ultimately just about you and the movie. It affects us because we are family, and this is about all of us as a unit, as a community. Can the hand say to the foot, I have no need of you? We are a body. And when you on a consistent basis belong to this body and do not show up, do not show concern, do not serve and be served and think it's no big deal, I would ask you if you think it would be no big deal and you would say nothing or ask nothing or not open your eyes wide if I showed up with a missing leg on crutches. Would that just be no big deal? Why the eye patch? You doing something funny for your kids? No, I lift it up and my eye is literally gone. Would that be no big deal? You matter. You matter to the Lord, and God has created the church so that we all matter to one another. This is the danger of putting sermons online or on the radio or even live streaming. Very helpful, but can be a danger if it's an excuse not to physically join the body and celebrate in this unique way that is meant to set us apart and join us together in a way that the world does not and cannot know. How extra confused they are when they see that we embrace this thing as so unique and then half of us don't even bother to show up. My friends, you must rid yourselves of this selfish and frankly arrogant notion that I can just live stream forever. I can just listen to the sermon online later because as long as I'm worshiping and as long as I'm getting something out of it, then it's okay. Or as long as I show up, it doesn't matter when, or as long as I show up once in a while, it's okay. That is not why God created the church, nor why He called the people to Himself. You didn't call a family reunion and pay for everyone to go to some exotic destination just for some people to say, nah, I don't think so. I was tired, and so I just missed my flight. I'm not going to show up. I'm not going to go on the cruise with the rest of the family. I'm not going to say hello to great-grandmother for the last time probably that I'll ever see her on this planet. That's not okay. You have to understand that church is not just a club. It's not just a movie theater. It's not just a store where you just show up and when you feel like you need something, you come. We need you to be here. It's a local church. It's the body. God called it the body, Christ's body for a reason. And what I am asking is you understand the uniqueness of who we are as a people. If you've ever thought of our church and you're a regular attender or you're a member and you've thought of our church as them, then you have missed the whole point because you have somehow disconnected yourself from the body. 
I said, I, I, I'm going to go. I got to go to a meeting. And my arm just said, no, can't believe they're going to that meeting. Or I walk outside and I cut open my foot and it's bleeding. And my hand says, nope, not going to help with the Band-Aid. Don't want anything to do with it. It's them. Told them not to go outside anyways. Agree or disagree with masks or vaccines or in person or outside or inside, shaking hands, hugging, whatever. Agree or disagree. You cannot disagree with Scripture that says we need you. You belong as part of our body. So much so that God instituted communion so that we would remember and recognize together what we are and what price He paid so that we could be a body. But let's move on. That was our review. This morning, our third reality of concluding reality of idolatry is the reality of immorality. The reality of immorality. Look at verses 19 and 20. What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. All of a sudden, this got really serious. It's not just some sort of disobedience like we disobey all the time. He's bringing in demons. And the questions he asks in verse 19 address the confusion that may arise from the fact that back in chapter 8 and verse 4, he said that idols are nothing and the food sacrificed to them are nothing. Yet here, for with much ink, he is saying that attending a temple feast or eating meat sacrificed to idols is a big problem. I thought you said it's nothing. Go back to 8.4. 1 Corinthians. He said this, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. He isn't in denial saying that, oh, there's no, there's no idols, I don't see any idols. He knows that idols exist. He's just saying that they're not a person. They're not a deity that exists. All that exists is some piece of wood or marble or metal that was molded or shaped or carved into something that looks like a person or an animal. Now, he still believes what he said in chapter 8, verse 4 is true. I know you get this, but we take much time going through the Scriptures. And so we were in chapter 8 like, what, three years ago? No, it wasn't that long. It was a few months ago. Right? But he didn't take months to write this letter. Right, He just probably wrote this a few minutes ago. If, even if he took a break, maybe it was just a couple hours or a day ago. He didn't change his theology from chapter 8 to chapter 10. He still believes it's true. It's just a piece of wood, a sculpted piece of marble. There's nothing that exists within that statue. It has no ontological reality. It's just a social construct that man has created. A religion, sure, a community, a type of commitment and worship. But in doing so, they are not worshiping the one true God. They are worshiping something else. And despite having no metaphysical existence within that statue, that idol, they are by no means neutral. They are demonic. 
and they represent the demonic. When the pagan worshipers sacrifice, they are sacrificing to demons, though they may not even know it. It's not that a demon is residing in that statue. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that whole system of any particular pagan religion revolves around an idol, thus making it a spiritual reality. After all, they would say that that is their spiritual side. Are you a spiritual person? Oh, yes, I worship Aphrodite. It's their religion. It is their worship. They believe it. They are in their minds and in their hearts praising and lifting up the name of that idol as we do with the real God. It's a spiritual thing for them. And when it comes to things that are spiritual, there are only two forces behind it. There's no third. Anything spiritual either has God behind it or the demons. Satan. That's why Paul writes that those who sacrifice to idols are not sacrificing to God, but to demons. To put it another way, demons are the spiritual force behind all idolatry because the only other option is God, and we know He's not behind it. Thus, these sacrifices are to demons. They didn't know that. There are millions of worshipers of false religions today. They don't say, oh, I'm a, I'm a Satan worshiper. They would have the same view intellectually of Satan as we do. Oh, I'm anti-Satan. I hate Satan. I don't like the demons. They don't know that they're worshiping demons. They don't know that they're involved in a, a religious system that's demonic. They would be just as offended as you would be if you called them a demon worshiper. They don't know that. They don't get it. But that's what it is because it is spiritual. And so when it's spiritual, it's either God or demons. But why does Paul just talk about the sacrifices and not the worship in general? Because he's talking to Christians. And the Christians are not worshiping the demons or the idols, but they are partaking of the sacrifices to those idols by eating the sacrificial meal after the worship service. And just as partaking in the Lord's table makes the Christian a sharer in the sacrificial work of the Lord and His people, so partaking in the idol's temple makes the Christian a sharer in the temple sacrifices and of the pagan temple worshipers. Remember, we talked about the word sharing that we saw last week being the word for fellowship. We have fellowship with Christ and with each other in and around the Lord's table. And so you see the logical conclusion that Paul is making here when people are eating at the idol's temple, which he just clarified is the demon's temple or table. And Paul, as he says at the end of verse 20, does not want the Christian to go through the same motions but at a pagan temple, at a pagan meal, thereby enacting a form of fellowship with demons and demon worshipers. All of this is more than just a physical meal. There are spiritual elements at play here, even when you acknowledge that the idols are nothing which the Corinthian believers are doing, because the forces behind it, the demons, are indeed something. We saw something similar early on in 1 Corinthians when adultery was forbidden. It's not just a meal. It's not just sex. 
outside of marriage, it's even more than just an immoral act. It involves a spiritual reality, no matter whom it is with, no matter how casual or consensual you say it is. In fact, turn back to chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, verses 15 through 17. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members, same word, members of Christ, then members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. There it is. You know that passage. It talks about the wonderful spiritual reality of marriage. And here or there, Paul says it's the spiritual reality of any sex. Verse 17, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. So again, we see not just the spiritual side of the sin, but the contrast with the union with Christ. As Christians, we are joined to the Lord and are one spirit with him. So we are not, as members of his body, to join with someone who is not our spouse. In the same way, as Christians, we are joined to the Lord's death and communion. So we are not, as members of his body, to join with any spiritual force that is not our God. And so the true danger and immorality of just going to that meal really comes forth for the Christian. He has not negated what he said earlier, where it's all about not causing the weaker brother to stumble. This has been Grace to the Bay with Dr. Roger Chen. For the next part in this series, join us next week at this same time. Grace to the Bay is the radio ministry of Grace Church of the Bay Area, practicing and proclaiming the purity of biblical truth. You are invited to join them for worship services in San Mateo, Sundays at 11 a.m. Visit gracebayarea.org for service times, directions, live streamed services, listen to archived sermons, or to make a tax-deductible donation to help keep Grace to the Bay on the air so that we can continue to share Pastor Roger's teaching with you each week. Again, that's gracebayarea.org. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.